0: Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter two. Be looking at verses thirteen through twenty-two this morning. If you don't have your Bible, you can find the text printed for you in your bulletin, or it will be on the screen behind me as well. This is God's holy word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them out of the temple with the, ox, with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, and his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask God to come through his spirit and to help us this morning with this passage. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would come and... that you would send your Holy Spirit to take this passage and apply it to our hearts. Would you open up our eyes so that we may see the wonders of the Lord Jesus? But we pray also that you would use this very difficult passage, challenging passage, something that we don't see often Jesus doing. But Lord, I pray that you would maybe turn over some tables in our hearts this morning through this passage. Come and comfort us, but challenge us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last week, it's a little bit different. <laughs> last week, we were uh, looking at the passage before this, Jesus at a wedding. And then right after it, he puts this story of Jesus at the temple. Last week, Jesus was extending a party By bringing the best wine. He was the life of the party. Well, this week, in a sense, he's the crasher of the party. The the, the Passover festival party. And instead of bringing wine, Jesus brings this morning a cord of whips. And when we look at a passage like this, and we're going to do this a lot. We did it last week. Why in the world would John the writer of the gospel, placed this story here? Why would he go so quickly from wine to whips? Well, remember in John chapter 1 verse 14, John says that Jesus comes into the world as the the word of God. And he comes and Jesus is full of grace and truth. That's what we see with these two stories, isn't it? John comes in the wine, we see Jesus full of grace. Well, this morning we see whips, Jesus bringing the truth. Well, because, you see, John puts these stories side by side because he wants us to see and experience the real Jesus. Because when Jesus comes into your life, the real Jesus comes into your life, it's always this these two stories, isn't it? On the one hand, it's, Jesus bringing the wine and its laughter and its joy. But sometimes Jesus comes in and starts flipping over tables in our lives without a word of explanation. You see, in, in order to understand the real Jesus, we've got to understand both of these stories. And if I'm honest this morning, I just want the Lord of the wine, I don't want the Lord of the whips. But you see, we need the Lord of the whips because you and I are in danger of making God into our own image, into creating a comfortable God. But God refuses to be tamed. And so he comes and he shows us this passage because it's only when we have a Jesus who can contradict our life, it's only when we have a Jesus that can challenge us, then and only then do we have a real God. So, this morning, we are going to look at three things that John shows us about the real Jesus. His anger, his passion, and his mission. Let's look at those three things this morning. His anger, his passion, and his mission. Number one, his anger. So, we need to ask the question, why is Jesus angry in this passage? And really, this was helpful for me this week and hopefully it will be helpful for you, we got to look at the context in order to really get this. So look at verses 13 through 16. This is very important. It's the Passover. That is a huge Jewish festival. And so people are coming to Passover festival, and they're coming from all over the Roman Empire to offer sacrifices to God. And I'll talk about that in the next point. But here's what I want you to see. They're traveling great distances to come to this festival. And so it's very inconvenient to bring an oxen or to bring a lamb or a sheep or a, maybe a cage or a box full of pigeons. They didn't want to do that. And so this was a very normal practice. They would get to Jerusalem for Passover and they would buy the animals there. And oftentimes they wouldn't have the right currency So they would take whatever money they had and they would exchange it and then they would buy an animal to be sacrificed. Very important that we understand that because it tells us something here. It's not what what was happening that angered Jesus. The problem was not with the what. Because this was a very normal part of the Passover festival. It was a very necessary task. So the problem's not with the what, the problem was with the where. And those three very important words, in the temple. And so Jesus walks in, and I imagine this scene, I try to get into the passage, and maybe this helps you, but it's almost like something out of a western, (laughs) an old western. Jesus walks in, doesn't say a word to anyone. You can hear this music maybe playing in the background and it kind of goes in slow motion. No one, a lot of people probably don't even know who Jesus is. And it go, you can just imagine it going in slow motion and him going down to the floor and he takes weeds or rushes and he starts to weave together ever so slowly a cord of whips, a cord of weeds. Not saying a word. I think that's important to note because Jesus doesn't come in with a cat of nine tails, okay? So it's a cord of weeds. It wasn't going to hurt anyone. And it also is interesting is you get the feel of Jesus' presence it must have been really, really powerful because he drives everyone out and these people could have very easily overtaken him. So that gives you a sense of the power of his presence But it also gives you a sense that these folks that were exchanging the money knew that what they were doing was wrong. And so Jesus begins to drive them out with a whip. And then he goes and one by one begins to overturn their tables. And the question is why? Well, most scholars agree that the buying and exchanging of the money, the buying of the animals and exchanging the money, was taking place, not in the heart of the temple, but in what is known as the outer courts of the temple. It was actually taking place in the outer courts of the Gentiles. Okay, so why would this make Jesus so angry? Well, think about it. Remember, even in the Old Testament, God was a God for the nations, The Israelites, from the very beginning of the Bible, were to be a light to the world, to all nations. And this temple had a place designated for outsiders, for Gentiles who had come to believe in the one true God, and it was called the outer courts. It was a place where they could come, Gentiles, and they could make sacrifices. They could pray and they could worship the living God. And in this passage, what we learn is that it had been turned into a zoo. It had been turned into a shopping mall. Think about that just for a second. If you're a Gentile and you're going to worship God, how does that make you feel? That makes you feel like a nobody. That makes you feel like you're on the outside and in a very direct way, It says, you're not welcomed here. This place is for us. Friends, we need to let that hit us right between the eyes this morning. Because you see at the very heart of Jesus and who he is, we see very vividly is that Jesus is a God who brings people in. God is a God for the nations. He's an inclusive God. And he says, if you follow me, then you also will be a person who brings people in. Are you a follower of Jesus this morning? Well, God says, if you're a follower of Jesus, but yet you have an attitude of being exclusive. Or maybe you are self-righteous or have a put-off attitude towards certain people, maybe outsiders, and you give off an impression that they are not welcomed in your circles. Friends, that makes Jesus angry. He doesn't like that. And I don't know about you, but this is really challenging. I know this is a hard passage. But here's a question. Students. Can your friend groups be characterized as warm and inviting and inclusive towards people that are not like you? Adults, what about your social circles? Can they be characterized as warm and inviting and inclusive? Or what about our church Or do people, when they come through our conversations and facial expressions and body language, or maybe just the sheer fact that we avoid them, do we send signals to those people that they're somehow not welcomed here? You see, friends, God is a rescuer. God is an open-armed God. And He goes after people who don't deserve Him. He goes after people who are full of shame and who are confused and who cannot make sense of their life. He goes after those people, and if we are not welcoming to outsiders and to those kinds of folks, God doesn't like it because it miscommunicates to the world who he really is. Ricky Jones, he's the former campus minister at Mississippi State, and he's now a church planner in Oklahoma. And he tells this story, I've heard him tell it. Uh, A few years ago, he had one of his prominent members of his church who was taking another job and moving to another city. And he comes in and he says, you know, we're moving. I hate that we're leaving your church, but thank you for all you've done. And Ricky said this just hit him because this was a guy who he had walked through lots of stuff and really hard things with. This man had fallen into sin and had been restored and they had been through thick and thin. And he had seen the Spirit really work in his life. But the reason he was meeting with Ricky was to just say, listen, can you call the people in the city that I'm moving and tell them about me? Tell them about my sin and who I am. And Ricky's taken back and he's thinking, wait just a second, I appreciate your vulnerability and you wanting to be known, but how did you get here? How did you go from a person who didn't want to be known, and was leading leading a secret life to a person who wants to be vulnerable and wants to be known. And the man says, I can tell you exactly when it was. It's when you brought me before the leaders of the church, and I confessed my sin and the things that I was deeply ashamed of. He said, and I thought I was going to be yelled at and scorned, but instead they wept with me. And they prayed with me. And after they prayed, I thought I was going to be shunned or get coldness. But instead, one by one, these men came over and hugged me. And he says, Ricky, it was the hugs that changed me. Because for the first time in my life, though I was deeply ashamed of myself, for the first time in my life, I realized that Jesus was not ashamed of me. And it changed me. That's it. That's what God calls us to be. That is my prayer for our church. Friends, I want this to be a place where you can come and bring the things that you're deeply ashamed of where you can invite your friends who have things in their life that they're deeply ashamed of, and they can come into our community, and instead of scorn, someone weeps with them, and prays with them. And instead of coldness, they would actually feel warmth and love, and someone would hug them. If you're here this morning, and that has not been your experience with Christianity, Instead, maybe you've gotten scorn and judgment and coldness and been communicated that you're not welcomed. If that's been your experience with Christianity, friends, I am deeply sorry. Forgive us. Because that's not what Jesus would do. Because Jesus is a God who welcomes people in. Secondly, His passion. Look at verse 16. We see that Jesus' anger reveals something about his passion. He says that you've turned my father's house into a shopping mall, into a house of trade. Okay, so think about this with me. They're going to church. These people are going to church. Why? Well, it's Passover. And you offer a sacrifice at Passover. Let me explain that. When someone wrongs you, there is a debt put in place. Some of you know this, because you've been deeply sinned against. Well, someone has to pay the debt. And God says that there is a huge debt between us and him, and it's the debt of our own sin. But God says, I am going to be merciful. I am a gracious and merciful God, and I will accept substitutes. And so he accepts substitutes, and they would bring their animals, and they would... Uh, make the animal bleed, and as they made that animal bleed and killed this animal, this lamb, or whatever it was, they would be reminded that that should have been me. But God accepts a substitute because God is merciful, and they would praise Him and say, thank you that I am alive because of your mercy. That's the focus of the worship. That should be the focus of our worship. The mercy and the goodness of God. And so these people are going to church and that is a good thing. They're going to offer their sacrifices. Then why is Jesus so angry? Well, they lost their heart for worship. They had forgotten why they were coming. They had gotten so caught up in the busyness and in the routine of life And they had lost sight of the glory of God. Think about it. The exchanging of money and selling of animals would take place every Passover, but probably out in the street somewhere. Well, what happened? Well, these folks wanted to make more money. They knew their sales would go through the roof if they could just offer this service so close to the temple. Not only that, they thought, well, who cares about the Gentiles? We're going to set up shop right here. We don't care about them. Do you see it? Why were they there? For themselves. It was all about them. And again, this should shake us to our core. Because as folks that have grown up in the religious south, it is possible for us to come here week after week after week and simply be going through the motions. In this passage, again, I think it's the force of the passage. I'm not trying to be hard, but I think this passage is difficult because it forces us to ask some really hard questions, doesn't it? And one of the questions it forces us to ask is, why are you here this morning? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're investigating Christianity, we're really glad you're here. Thanks for coming. But if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, why are you here this morning? You see, this passage is sobering because it says that there is a way to do this. What we're doing, week in and week out, and it be all about... You. There's a way to do this and be consumers. And to come and the focus be solely on our emotions and our experiences and on our preferences. And Jesus says, that makes me really upset. Verse 17. Zeal for my father's house is what consumes me. What is God's number one, Jesus' number one concern? The glory of God. The glory of His Father. Because that is at the heart of worship. We are to come and remember that we don't deserve to be here. We are to come and remember that we are here by the mercy of God. And back then, they looked at an animal. Now, you and I, we come and we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb who paid our debt and paid our sin once and for all. And we come week after week and we should fall on our face and worship as we sing these songs and as we hear from God in His Word, and as we come to this table, because it reminds us that we are alive by the mercy of God. You see, when we lose the reverence and the thankfulness and the wonder, then the whole reason for our coming is lost. Third, His mission. Look at verses 18 through 22. And so Jesus makes this scene. He comes in, he's got this cord of whips and he's flipping over tables and people are running out of the temple and the authorities come in and basically say, who do you think you are? What authority do you have to come in and do what you've just done? Give us a sign that you have authority to do this. So you've got to remember that the temple was a huge deal. It was a symbol of hope. While God's presence was everywhere, there was something uh, unique about the temple and the presence of God in his glory dwelling there. It was the meeting place of heaven and earth. And so Jesus says, a sign, I am the sign. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And the authorities, can you imagine? They're saying, this guy must be crazy. What are you talking about? Three days. It took us 46 years to build this thing. And Jesus just leaves it hanging there. And the disciples, we learn here, John tells us, didn't even really understand until later after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But then John gives us a clue and lets us in on a secret, doesn't he? Look at verse 21. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Isn't that amazing? See what Jesus is saying? A sign, I am the sign, I am the temple of the living God. Worship me and you worship God. Jesus is saying, this temple that you're looking at is foreshadowing me. And that is amazing because here's what that means for you if you believe in Jesus Christ, that if you know the real Jesus... You've got the living presence of God dwelling in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes another incredible statement. And he says, you, believer, your body is the temple of God. It is not your own, but you were bought with a price. Think about that statement just for a second. That will floor you. And I don't know about you, but that is a little bit terrifying. Your body is the temple of God, and the very presence of God is in your life. And here's what it means, that God has a zeal for your life to be consumed with worship and the glory of God. Friends... God cares about your holiness. He wants you to be holy. He cares about destroying and dismantling the idols in your life that are keeping you from worshiping Him. That's terrifying. But also, I think it's deeply encouraging and comforting as well because here's what it means. Jesus loves you so much that He will not stop He will not stop until he drives out every impurity, every idol, and every blemish in your life so that he can make you holy. So that you will belong completely and wholly to him. He will not stop pursuing holiness in your life until that happens. And some of you know that that is oftentimes a very painful process. It's very painful because, and hard because it means that God sometimes comes into your life and He starts flipping over tables. He comes into your life to make you holy, not because He's mad at you, but because He loves you and because He wants all of you. And He will use anything and everything in order to make that happen in your life. He'll use your spouse. He'll use your children. He'll use your friendships and your circumstances and your disappointments in life. The things that didn't work out for you. He does all of those things in order to bubble up your sin so that you will finally deal with it. So that he can have all of your heart. Some of you this morning, maybe you hear that and you're thinking, Jason, I hear you, but I feel like I'm a Christian, and I feel like all I do is struggle. I feel like I struggle with the same things over and over and over again. I feel like such a mess. And I want to love Jesus more. I want to love Him more than anything else, but I can't stop obsessing over what people think of me. And it paralyzes me. Or, I want to be patient with my children, but I just can't. It just seems like impatience starts coming out of me. I can't get a handle on my anger. I can't get a handle on my constant need to manipulate and control people in order to get them to do what I want. Jason, I cannot generate the love that I know Jesus deserves. I hear you. But I think this passage is deeply encouraging to people like me and you. Because what this passage says is contrary to what you think. Because I know what you think, because I think it. God's, surely he's going to get tired of me. Surely his love will run out. Surely he will grow impatient and he will be done with me and he will write me off because I can't get my act together. No. Look at this passage. He is consumed... With your holiness. He is more committed to your holiness than you are. That is deeply encouraging to me. And he will not let you go because it's dependent upon his faithfulness. He will not quit on you. And you're thinking, okay, Jason, how can we be sure of that? Look at verse 22. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. If God did not spare his only son... How will he not also graciously give you all things? I heard a story recently about a seven-year-old boy named Daniel. He was in an orphanage in Romania, and he had to sleep sitting up in the crib because he was sharing it with someone else, and there was not enough room for him to lay down. And he had very little human uh, or adult interaction. The only time he was let out of his crib was to go to the restroom or to eat. He had never been hugged. He had never been kissed. He had never had a birthday party. He had no concept of what parents were and how they were to operate in your life until one day this couple by the name of Heidi and Rick Solomon from Ohio came along. And they adopted him. And at first, things went okay. They weren't great. But things continued, continued to get worse. They got so bad, his uh, his anger, Daniel's anger, was very violent. So much so that at one point in time, there were over a thousand holes in the wall. It got even worse and The experts said that he had what was known as reactive or commonly known as orphan attachment disorder. Said he could not form human relationships. That he had no empathy and no conscience when it came to certain things. And they actually suggested that they medicate him, lock him up, and hand him over to protective custody. And as you can imagine, the Solomons absolutely refused to do that. And the people that were interviewing, this guy that was interviewing them said, how in the world can you love someone who is so hostile towards you? And the Solomons responded, well, he's our son. How could we not? And they looked at Heidi and the doctor said, well, If you want to move forward, you have got to attach yourself to Daniel. You cannot let him get over three feet away from you, and when he does something wrong, the punishment is hugs and kisses. Touch and more touch. Fast forward a few years, and Daniel receives an award in his school for being the top and best student. And now he regularly tells his parents that he loves them. You see, it was the unstoppable. The never-ending, never-giving-up love of Heidi and Rick Solomon that changed his life forever. Isn't that what we all want this morning? Don't you want somebody to love you like that? To be so committed to you. That they attach yourself to you and love you with a never ending, never giving up, unstoppable kind of love, and they will not let you stay where you are, but they are committed to your growth. That's Jesus. That's the promise of Jesus the temple, who comes and on the one hand, he's the Lord of the wine, he's faithful and he forgives, but on the other hand, he's the Lord of the whips. And he is so committed to you that he will not let you stay where you are, but he will drive out every harmful thing that keeps you from him. You see, to know the real Jesus, John tells us, is to go through chapter 2 of the book of John. And so my question this morning is, do you know Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? In John chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, would you convince us of your never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving up love. That when you turn over tables in our lives, it's not a bad thing. It's hard, but it's not bad. It means that you love us and that you want us to be consumed with the worship and the glory of God. Make us into those people. In Jesus' name, amen.